The future of Bangladesh depends on people like you. We are a group of friends who left Dhaka in the early 80s and been working in strategic consulting, international development, diplomatic services, and even one of us built a very large business. Now we want to bring something back to Bangladesh. We want to bring through this platform, through this podcast, our network, our knowledge, and work with you together to shape the future of Bangladesh. Basically, Sam and I, we studied in high school together, late 70s. And I have not, I don't think, have seen him physically for more, almost about 20 years. So yep. COVID brought us together. So <laughs> a few of us were discussing what to do. We all want to do something for Bangladesh. And I started this podcast on electric vehicle batteries, everything mm-hmm. that you and I discussed. Mm-hmm. So many ideas was floating around. We said, okay, one easy one, we can start with this because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Mm-hmm. And this may be a good entry. One of our friends, he's also an ambassador of Bangladesh in Turkey. And he has connections straight to the government. So he was also saying, yes, we all approaching retirement. We should do something. One is an entrepreneur. He has a large company out of Austin. So a lot of discussion. And this is one of the fruit that is happening. I really appreciate your joining. When I saw your name, I said, oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) This is what we call serendipity in science, right? (laughs) Sort of chance encounter that turns into something fruitful and productive, which is great. This was that amazing situation on the plane when we started talking on the plane where Sohel approached me looking at the presentation I was preparing and then we spent ah. talking across the aisle for the rest of the of this uh, Which you're flight. not supposed to do, right? If it is confidential. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, yeah, but this was, this was really, for me, this was yeah, amazing, this conversation, and that's why we kept in touch. That is terrific. So that's where we are here. The idea is it's a very open platform. We both come from a very large corporate. So we are not going to put anything out that you are not absolutely comfortable about. So we understand the corporate ethics and that's what we grew up with. He's with McKinsey and with the Asian Development Bank. So let's feel free to discuss. And then if you say, no, I should not have said that, we will edit it, upload it. Also, I found a new service whereby I can get it transcribed super easy. Mm -hmm. So you will have the whole thing. And if you feel, okay, I'm comfortable, then we are going to, of course, post through our own social media, which is LinkedIn and Twitter, whatever professional Mm -hmm. sites we have. The objective, these Friends 2050 together objective is to how can we bring knowledge, technology network together that we have to the young people in Bangladesh and focusing on 2050. This is the future. Yeah. I may not be there, but the people who get inspired, get connected. Yeah. And technology provides us that enabler. And having a longer term focus means we are also not going to be carried away by the political tensions of today and tomorrow election cycles. Exactly, so, yeah. mm-hmm. so that's the objective. And specifically here, uh, as I keep on saying that you have tremendous credibility, you have done your research. So having been able to bring your voice straight to our family and friends and beyond, that's fantastic. We're very proud that we are able to make this connection. So I think that's a by way of my introduction. Sam, you want to say something? 
Yes, what I would say is also thank you for agreeing to do this. You are the second guest on this podcast. We are still learning as we do this, so bear with us. If we you know, are steering in a direction that you feel you're not the right person to you know, get into, we'll be happy to you know, go into a separate direction. But the idea here is to separate fact from fiction. As a scientist, of course, you care about facts. You focus on the facts. And where you are not comfortable that the findings are solid in the sense there is a lot of uncertainty. You know, you talk about error bars in your analysis and data. You also let us know, you know, level of confidence, what is is statistical significance or level of confidence as a scientist. Share that level of insight and experience that you have with our audience. I think that will also be helpful. And by way of my background, uh, I'm a chemical engineer by background, undergraduate and PhD in chemical engineering. I have studied fluid dynamics, by the way, as, a, as an undergraduate, but that was a long time ago. So I understand a little bit about the aerosol dynamics, but not something that you know, I have studied at great length. But hopefully, you know, we can get into some of that in today's discussion as well. Okay. So why don't we start with your background as to, you know, what got to what you are doing today as it relates to the aerosolized spread of the COVID currently, as you understand it? Well, it's a long journey, starting with me always wanting to be a nuclear physicist. And that's what I achieved. I became nuclear physicist. In the process, however, I discovered other interesting aspects of science, in particular environmental radioactivity and radon in the air, radon gas and its progeny, which eventually brought me during my postdoc in Canada at the University of Toronto, brought me to the topic of ultrafine particles, which I then considered it something completely unknown scientifically. And that's what I set to investigate. And when I got my position here at the Queensland University of Technology, where I'm still many years or decades after this, I decided that this would be the area uh, I would investigate. And I set up a research group with the focus of this. Ultrafine particles in the air. Well, particles of this size are not the only ones in the air. There are particles of larger sizes, gases, and so on. So eventually, the activity of the group increased and encompassed other aspects. But one specific involvement got our direction into this area of respiratory aerosols. And this was an invitation which I received in 2003 during the SARS-1 outbreak in Hong Kong to participate in a team of aerosol experts to investigate what happened there. It was completely a mystery at the time. A team of WHO epidemiologists investigated why 300 people got infected from one person visiting for one night, his brother. And as a result, all those people living in 20-something towers spread over a distance of a few tens or hundreds of meters, got infected. As a result of this, there was a paper which appeared, I think it was in Nature, with the idea that there were some very fast-running rats carrying the virus around, because otherwise these people didn't have any contacts between each other. So what, how this virus was spread? Well, obviously, this, there were no rats doing this. 
Retrospective studies showed that, in fact, this was airborne transport. What happened there was quite complicated, and I'm not going to go into details in this because it's not something which commonly happens. But the bottom line was that the virus was expelled from one of, of the bathrooms through a bathroom fan and then got uh, carried uh, by air across this whole area. And the studies, retrospective modeling, showed the uh, direct relationship between where the air plume with the virus went and the cases. Was that I a ventilation system in a large building? What was the well, no, this, this wasn't, in fact, as I say, it was a very strange situation with a plumbing system. Plumbing system, the problem was that there was in one of the toilets, there was so-called dry floor, which means there was no water. So if the content of the stuff was going down, it was then sucked into that particular bathroom. So the, the viral contact of the feces was very high. And it was sucked into that bathroom and from that bathroom expelled by the bathroom fan and uh, carried away. So as I said, this is a very unusual situation. It was not directly from human expiration. But this showed that the virus can be airborne and can be transmitted through the air. I started investigating this topic doing literature search, and to my surprise, I found that at the time, there were only three papers, only three papers over the span of many decades, which investigated the science of aerosol transmission. Of course, there were other papers on epidemics and other aspects of the epidemics, but not on the science of aerosol transmission. So then I thought, well, this is really scientifically fascinating but also so extremely important. So we added this line of research into our portfolio of, of activities. We got a large grant and we did work on aerosol from human expiration, size distribution, size of origin, and other characteristics, which is now considered a some fundamental work, which is used by many people for various purposes of modeling, analysis, and so on. So Just for our audience, when you say expiration, that means mm -hmm. exhaling, breathing exhaling, it out. Exhaling, that's that right, correct? yeah. So this is the response to your question, what brought me or our group into the area of aerosols from human exhalation. Excellent. This is great story in terms of how, you know, a situation essentially calls your expertise into action. Your work in microparticles happens to be something that is relevant to this. And then you took on that challenge, which is another case of courage. And physicists, by the way, I have to admire physicists, they seem to have that kind of courage. They take on, you know, on the financial market on Wall Street, become the quants. <laughs> they take on biology and come up with, you know, Francis Crick, you know, is among them, right? <laughs> so I have a lot of admiration for physicists to be able to, you know, sort of evolve their expertise and, and grow into a lot of areas in science, which has been transformed by physicists. So kudos to you and your clan in physics. <laughs> This is something very interesting for me. And I always look at a, at a broad picture. If you look at a broad picture of anything happening in science, you immediately have to cross different disciplines of science. Physics yeah. is one of them, but physical principles are not the only ones to explain many things which happen. So therefore, you have to think laterally and you need to bring expertise from other fields, which means working with colleagues from many different fields which is so extremely enriching intellectually and scientifically. Absolutely. I love the phrase, think laterally. Mm -hmm. I happen to admire somebody by the name Edward Di Bono. I don't know if you've heard of him. He 
has promoted the idea of lateral thinking as well, which is absolutely what you are, you are trying to do. So let's get to your work. Tell us a little bit about the experiments that you have done to make the case that COVID-19 virus, you know, specifically, was it with the COVID-19 virus or was it some analog of the virus that you worked with? Give us a bit of a sense of the context of your work. Well, this is a very interesting question and everybody is asking that question, what you've discovered right now? And I'm saying we haven't discovered anything right now or haven't done any specific experiment right now which, which changed the world's view on airborne transmission. The point really is that the science of airborne transmission of respiratory infections has been in place for a long time, but for a long time, I'm talking about the last few years, last 10 years, last 20 years, not in relation to one specific virus. Of course, uh, science grew as a result of SARS-1. But one common respiratory infection is influenza, for example. There have been lots of different studies done. And from many different angles, from the aerosol expiration, aerosol characteristics, virology, from epidemiology, from a ventilation perspective, uh, airflow in buildings. So this is just not one element of science. All these pieces of the puzzle have been in place be well before the epidemics or the pand pandemics. And the fact that the science was in place and the fact that the science hasn't been recognized and therefore no actions have been taken. That's what drove me and my colleagues, the colleagues who I brought into this, to action. Well, we need to tell the world that this is important. But this wasn't a particular discovery at this very point of time. So this is very important to stress. Got it. So tell us a little bit about the COVID-1 or SARS-1 and this virus in terms of similarity, you know, you're able to extend the work that you did back in 2002-2003 to this current situation. Tell us a little bit of the, you know, the logic behind that as well. Well, the logic is such that in the process of all the expiratory activities, breathing, speaking, coughing, singing, we expel aerosols. They are aerosolized from our respiratory tract. Air passes, when we exhale, air passes or do all these things, air passes through narrow parts of our respiratory tract. They are all covered with liquid. And in the process of doing this, they aerosolize the particles, the aerosols. It is the same process if, as in a nebulizer, and I'm sure as a, as a chemical engineer, you've used some nebulizers at one occasion yep. or another. Each time we press the lever of, let's say, perfume bottle, we aerosolize this perfume. So this is the same process which occurs in our respiratory tract, just more complex because there are many different passages in the alveola, in the nose, in the larynx, and so on. So the size distribution and characteristics of aerosol, which we exhale, are more complex than those from, let's say, a perfume bottle. So in the process of aerosolation of, of the liquid covering the lining of our respiratory tract, anything which is on the surface of this respiratory tract, in particular, if it's a virus, it's aerosolized as well. So in this case, it doesn't matter whether it's this virus or that virus, it matters that it is on the lining there of the respiratory tract and it's aerosolized. How much of it is aerosolized and gets out depends 
on many factors which are not specific related to the virus. For example, the question is where the virus is in our respiratory tract. In relation to this particular epidemic, we hear that it is in the nose, but it at later stages is in the lung. So different viruses at different stages of the illness are in the different parts of the respiratory tract. The physiology of the respiratory tract differs between people. Some people of the same height, size, and so on have narrow, uh, narrower, say, or, or wider passages. So it's a very complex process depending on, ma on many factors, but basically the, how it works is very well understood. As I said, whether it's this virus or another virus. And that was the, really the f foundation, what we are saying. The fact that this is a new virus, which we don't exactly know what, what does it do to humans in terms of many different manifestations, but in terms of how it gets out of our respiratory tract is similar to any other virus. Okay. Now, in terms of how far it goes, because I can imagine, you know, the virus floating, because when I think about an aerosol, the surface area is huge, given the particle size, right? So given that evaporation process, if you consider the surface area, it probably also evaporates unless the phlegm that comes out of the human body versus pure water will have different characteristics. Probably it's a bit slower than just water, I would imagine. That makes the case that aerosol could float you know, further than if it were just water. That, that is my hypothesis here. Given that, what level of, of confidence do we have that, you know, instead of 10 meters or 30 meters from the person who is breathing out, people could still, you know, be exposed? Now, we covered the concept of the viral load in our last podcast. I was trying to pin down do you need just a single virus to be infected or do you need a critical mass? In engineering, you use the term critical mass. In, in nuclear engineering, you use the critical mass as well, right? Before something becomes above critical, then it explodes, right? But below critical points, it doesn't, right? So I was trying to get at that, but I don't know if it is known, frankly. If the viral load is subcritical or supercritical in that sense, do you have any sense as to how we should interpret you know, the findings so far? Now, there are several elements of your question. So I'll start with yep. the last one, the viral load, how much a virus is needed for starting an infection. This is not known yet. And I'm saying what I know from my colleagues, virologists, because I'm not a virologist myself. In relation to other respiratory infections, like, for example, influenza, they have a reasonable idea how much virus is needed. And they are talking about between 2,000 and 3,000. There are very complex experiments which need to be done to establish this, basically infecting people, healthy people, with a virus. And this was done like this with, with influenza, uh, by inhalation, by nasal oculation as well. Uh, eventually, they realized that if they do it in one of these ways, it's the, the progress of the illness is more severe, so such experiments were stopped as not ethical. So this was influenza. Now, we don't know this in relation to this virus, and there's no ethical approval body which would agree to conduct this kind of experiments of human to establish how much virus is needed. The thinking is that because it's a new virus, so fewer copies of the virus 
are sufficient to cause the infection. So they are talking maybe between one and hundred, but maybe with between one hundred and thousand. This is not known how many copies of the virus are, are needed. So this this is something which well maybe eventually science will establish or maybe not, considering the complexities of such studies. In terms of what happens to the aerosol when it's exhaled by a person, it is sometimes called aerosol, sometimes in droplet. So lots of confusion about this terminology, but by aerosol we mean a particle, solid or liquid, in the air. Droplet is a liquid particle, which means droplet is a liquid aerosol. So in, in, in this field we, we can use aerosol or we can use droplet, but we know what it means, a droplet is a liquid aerosol. So because it is li liquid, so of course as soon as it leaves our body, it starts evaporating and evaporating very fast. The process of, of, evaporation, uh, of evaporation is very difficult to quantify because of the composition, complex composition of these droplets. Now, we've all done, by me, by we, I mean all aerosol scientists have done simple calculations of evaporation of water droplets or water droplets containing salts of the concentration of, say, our saliva. This is, this is easy, but these droplets contain not only water, not only virus, if, if there's a virus there, but also proteins, salts, all kinds of other components, which we don't necessarily know. And as I said, this evaporation process is quite complex. So this is one of the biggest complexities probably in this field. Now, the fact, so it evaporates, gets smaller. So because it gets smaller, so it has a higher chances of staying in the air. But even if it wouldn't, some of them uh, are sufficiently small uh, at the point of uh, exhalation that they, they are already small enough to stay in the air for quite uh, long periods. So once they are in the air, once they are small enough or light enough, then is the question, what's the most important? Is it the gravity? to take them down, or is there are other forces? And there are other forces, for example, in terms of any flows in the air, any air currents, and for those small ones, such forces acting would be more significant than gravity, and that's why they stay in the air. Mm -hmm. I have a question here. Lydia, talking about other forces in the air, so what about negative ion generators and things like that? Will that attract these things away to the walls rather than floating? There's a lot of discussion what ions do in the air. Well, ions result if dependently what is the what is the sign of the ions, positive or negative. So they attract the particles of the different or repel a yeah, so of, of course there is a physics of this, and there have been suggestions then ionizing the air could help. But it's not the way we would recommend to deal with them. Because first of all, if you ionize the air, they, this has also many other negative effects on, on health, on the processes. And here we are talking about sufficiently complex process on its own. Now, attaching ions, whether these ions would attach to these particles, whether they do anything, probably there are many other ways or engineering controls to remove them from the air rather than starting with ionization. Yeah, yeah, just a thought came into my mind. So. Yeah, no, this is a good question because we, we get many, many questions of this nature of ionization. So 
as I said, it is used in certain situations, but it is not something I would recommend as a starting point to deal with the viruses in the air. Yeah, I mean, we may get into more detail on the what the solutions might be, but one thing I also hear about is some kind of ultraviolet radiation. You put, you zap them basically, zap the virus with some kind of a radiation. Now, ultraviolet, some people think it is safe enough, but I also have some doubts about safe use of it, you know, in the wrong hands. <laughs> they may not even know they, they're exposed to the eyes. That could be a potential problem. What are the kinds of things that you see people are proposing, given our current understanding of, you know, how the aerosol stays floating in the air? You can, of course, bring them down to the earth. And, and one of the things that ionization could potentially be, maybe you can apply some kind of a field, electric field, that will bring them down. <laughs> but that's probably not very practical. But how about radiation based? I mean, radiation meaning radiation sounds pretty serious, but I'm talking about you know ultraviolet or any other kind of radiation based destruction of the virus. I hope you enjoyed today's show. See you next time on a similar topic. Please feel free to leave your comments behind and suggestion what topic we might cover next. Thank you. <laughs>